You're listening to episode 10 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the origin of the Phantom Stranger, as well as three other origins of the Phantom Stranger. Just go with it. It'll make sense. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and my guest today is the writer of the award-winning comic Ace Kilroy, founder of the Aquaman Shrine, and co-host of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, secret admirers of all ages, please join me in welcoming... Ah, this is awkward... Who did I cover Firestorm with? I think I talked to Rob about Firestorm. So, <laughs> Shag? Is it Shag? <laughs> this is hot. <laughs> Hi, Rob. It's Rob Howdy. Kelly, everybody. Howdy, Ryan. I want to say that I really uh, am impressed with the fact that you're continuing on with the show past episode four because most people have said online that that's when the show jumped the shark. It was an awful show, and I really think it's uh, – the one with Siskoid right after was good, so you're clearly back on the upswing, but that was rough. You know, That, that fourth episode was, was really rough going, but I appreciate your, your determination to see it through. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for spending your holiday with me. Uh, for listeners who might care, Rob and I are recording on 4th of July afternoon because, you know, America – this is, this is how we show our patriotism, by talking when you, comics. When you think of America, you think of the Phantom Stranger. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially, you will after this episode. Well, as I mention every episode, to let new listeners know what the heck it is we're going to be talking about, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics with each issue telling or retelling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. More than 3% of which are featured in the issue Rob and I are going to talk about today. (laughs) And that is Secret Origins issue 10, starring the Phantom Stranger. Rob, tell us why you're the right guest to talk about this character. Well, that's an ar- I don't know if I can make that argument necessarily, but I do love the Phantom Stranger. I I, sh- I have had I don't know I mean I haven't updated it in years, so I don't know if you can put that in the present tense. Had a blog about the Phantom Stranger called I Am the Phantom Stranger which chronicled the every appearance of the character all the way up until basically just after the New Fifty Two. So uh, yeah, I have always loved this guy. He's always one of my like top five ten favorite characters and uh you know he i i felt like he was underrepresented 
uh, blog-wise. So that was why uh, when I ended my JLA satellite blog, I decided to give one devoted, you know, do one devoted just to the Phantom Stranger. What was it about the character that particularly attracted you? I like his visual. I mean, part of it is just he just looks really cool. Most of him, most of the time, he was drawn by on his solo adventures, Jim Aparo, which he's my Jim Aparo is my all-time favorite comic book artist. So that helped. And I just love the whole mystery bit. You know, I love that uh, when he was in Justice League, he would pop in, do his bit, and disappear. And you know, like he, the JLA put up with more nonsense from him than they would put up for any other member. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I really like because you know they were like, "Are you a member or not?" And then they turn around, he's gone. You know, <laughs> like they even Superman put up with that nonsense. So I, I just sort of appreciated his, um, the, the, you know, that that dynamic that they had in, in Justice League. So yeah, I've always just thought he was a really just neat character. I was trying to figure out where my first exposure to the character was, and I really can't remember. But I know as late for most fans as 10 years ago when I really started deep diving into DC Comics history, particularly the Silver and Bronze Age, um, he was always popping up. And seemingly like Uatu of the, of the Fantastic Four, he would show up, offer some exposition that was either helpful or not at all. I also found that with my exposure to him, fairly in, inconsistent in his depiction – in how involved he got. Oh, definitely. Um, but the probably the, the one that always stuck with me was an issue of World's Finest Comics from the dollar issue era when Superman became a vampire. Mm-hmm. Phantom mm-hmm. Stranger helped Batman work, helped Superman work through those vampire issues. Um, I think that's World's Finest 244, I believe. That sounds right. I remember I got it because it had a black canary and green and green. Oh, right, right, right. It was right. during that run. Probably... Probably one of the issues with the uh, the man bear or the wolf man. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a short promotional break, but when we come back, the four different secret origins of the Phantom Stranger. Don't go away. Obviously, the people who create comic books want you to read the things. Comic books aren't meant to be precious. They're pop art. They're junk culture. But they're our culture. If you're listening to this podcast, it's your culture. Most people, when they talk about comic books, they're talking about the so-called big two, Marvel Comics and DC Comics. It strikes us, though, that the entire comic book industry is undervalued by the general public. As comic aficionados, we'd like to have a podcast out there that covers the entire rest of the industry, and for that purpose, we will be your under guides. If you're sitting around and you find yourself bitching about comic books all the time and how comic books suck and how back in your day comic books were good, take a listen to the under guides and you'll maybe open up a little doorway to some independent comic books that you hadn't read before. It doesn't have Spider-Man in it or a Wolverine or a Green Lantern in it, but it talks about people's lives and stuff and sometimes you can identify with. If you're wondering where all the good writers and stuff went that don't write your comic books anymore, they're making independent stuff. So maybe we, we may cover it and you may find something you can go, go check out. Secret Origins number 10 was cover dated January 1987. The on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World, was October 9th, 1986, and the issue was a tie-in to the Legends miniseries event that was going on at the time. Uh, Rob, before we dive into the story, what do you think about the cover? Oh, it's cool. It's a, Obviously, it's an M.C. Escher riff. Uh, I have to think this is credited to Jim Perro, but I have to think that someone else at DC designed it. Because this is pretty kind of abstract in Aparo's covers. Uh, believe me, you know, as anybody knows, I am like this the biggest fan, so I'm not knocking the guy. But Aparo's covers were never really uh, symbolic. They were pretty much like a scene from the story. 
just drawn as the cover. So this this is much more abstract and representational, uh, or maybe not actually probably not representational. It's 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 more symbolic than anything else. And so I'm betting that somebody at DC in house, you know, maybe gave the general layout to Apero, or at the very least said, "Oh, why don't we try this?" And then Apero executed it. But we don't know that because it's only credited to Jim Apero. I wonder if it was one of the other artists that maybe came up with the idea, but. You're, you're right. Could have been anybody, and it might have just been an editorial suggestion that, right, right, right. that he just took and said, "Okay, well, I've never tried something like that, but let me flex my muscles a little bit." Right. I like it. It's just in the first ten issues of Secret Origins, we have our third yellow background, and also the the multiple figures of the Stranger appear quite small. There's a lot of negative space, which I guess feels appropriate for the character. I mean, I guess you just have to because you you have to fit in the architecture. The architecture is is that's going to be the reveal of what this is. So yeah, I mean, if you look at MC Escher's work, his figures are always pretty tiny because he was so concerned with getting in the backgrounds. I mean, I mean, you the artist, you have that background, and I don't. But from my very minimal knowledge of it, I'm trying to find like I guess the focal point of this image is the eyes, kind of right through that that central window. Um, if if not the stranger right above that, kind of looking down. Yeah, my eye tends to go to the one at the very top just because he's breaking through the logo. But yeah, I think you're meant to look at the one right in the center because everything's pointing to, to yeah. him. Interesting. So I like it. Yeah, it's very it's it's very striking. Okay. All right. Well, since you are the guest, you got your choice of which two of the four stories you wanted to cover, and you picked the first two. So take it away whenever you're ready. All right, well, the first one is Tarry Till I Come Again by Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo, the team from Batman and the Outsiders. Siskoid, shut up. So uh, this starts with a priest, Father Knox, who is feeling nothing but despair on Christmas Eve. He sees the world around him falling apart, and he wonders if he's doing any good. He is interrupted by the phantom stranger who comes to offer confession. Uh, Knox is reluctant but finally agrees, and the stranger tells his story, which begins many centuries ago. He was a man named Isaac who had a wife and son living in Bethlehem. Then the soldiers of King Herod arrived and slaughtered everyone in the town in, in search for someone. And in the melee, they kill Isaac's wife and son. Three decades later, Isaac gets to see the man they were looking for, no less than Jesus Christ, who, despite his talk of love and peace, sends Isaac into a rage. It was because of this man that his family was killed. When Jesus is apprehended by the authorities, Isaac bribes a guard to let him take the guard's place, allowing him to dispense some physical revenge on the man. But instead of begging for mercy, Jesus quietly pronounces that while he may die, it is Isaac who is condemned to walk the earth until Jesus returns. At this point, Father Knox is understandably shocked. This phantom stranger guy is claiming to be no less than the wandering Jew. But the stranger assures he's telling the truth and continues with his story over time. The stranger is there to see many of the most famous events in world history. At one point, he delves into black magic to try and break Christ's decree, all to no avail. Uh, At one point, he attempts to rescue a woman accused of being a witch who is the splitting image of his late wife, Rebecca. The stranger uses his powers to free of her captors, but she dies anyway. Her death sparked something in the stranger, however. This woman did not blame God for her death. This forced the stranger to rethink how he looked at life, and eventually he joined the service of that God whose name I once did curse. Father Knox isn't buying any of this until something happens he can't believe, and is literally the voice of God appears talking to the phantom stranger. The the Father Knox sees all this. The stranger gives him the kind of like... uh, Men in Black treatment by erasing his memory. Father Knox wakes up sort of in a daze. The Phantom Stranger has disappeared. And it ends uh, with uh, Father Knox outside of a church, just wondering what, uh, in fact, he just saw. And that is the end of the story. What was Mike Barr's previous experience with the Phantom Stranger? Did he have any? 
Yeah, he wrote uh, the backup strip for Phantom Stranger that appeared in Sega of the Swamp Thing. Uh, those stories were one-offs uh, for the most part. And so, yeah, he wrote a bunch of those, which are really good. They're really old-school kind of mystery comic type things. But that was – so he had written The Stranger previously to this point. And what was Jim Aparo's previous experience with The Stranger? Well, the, yeah, the, the, Aparo was the artist on The Phantom Stranger basically during what most people consider – the golden age of the character, which was the Phantom Stranger solo book in the 70s. Uh, pretty much under the writing of Lynn Ween, they were a team. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, this is some of Impero's best work. Every issue, it was like the Phantom Stranger was taking on some different monster, like an ice giant or like Satan, you know, like Satan or one thing. And then they had some villains. Tanarak was another one, Italia. Uh, those are some of my all-time – those are not only my favorite Phantom Stranger stories. They're some of my favorite comics, period. And Impero – you know, Impero in 1972, 73, 74, to me, top of his game. Top of his game. And so those, that's his, and he continued to draw the stranger through different appearances. Of, this was actually the last full-length Phantom Stranger story Impero would end up drawing. And previously, he, he'd also, he drew him very briefly in that, uh, the Aquaman Red Tornado battle in Justice League of America 200, too. That's right. Yeah, he appears in there. Uh, he, 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 he and um, when he appeared in Brave and the Bold, he drew that. So yeah, he Apero was kind of almost the definitive Phantom Stranger artist if you could have such a thing for a character that appeared so sort of spottily. Uh, really, Apero I think is the one most people think about. And in fact, uh, midway through the Phantom Stranger series, uh, Apero left the book to go on to do Brave and the Bold, I believe. And he was replaced by Jerry Talaok. I don't know how you pronounce it. But Jerry Talaok's style could not have been further from Jim Aparo because Jerry Talaok was part of the Filipino school and it was very uh, like Baroque and, you know, full of line work and Aparo's was clean and people just went nuts. People hated it. (laughs) And in fact, the editors even ran letters in the, in the book saying how much people hated Jerry Talaok's work, but they continued to get Aparo to do the covers, even though uh, he was no longer doing the insides, which to me indicates, you know, people knew, you know, DC knew people want to see this character drawn by Aparo. It was going to help sell it. So that he continued to do the covers pretty much through, I think, till the final issue. Hmm. Well, what did you think about the story? I think it's great. I mean, uh, I mean, this is maybe something to get into at the end, but what the hell we'll talk about now. One of the things I love about this, this the conceit of this issue, mm-hmm. is that the whole point of Secret Origins was to give definitive origins. Right. You know, this is it. This is where this character started. And comic book fans... More so now than then, but back then it was more than it was previous. Like it's 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 just been to me an, an upward trajectory. No comic fans, they don't want any mystery anymore. Everything has to be explained, and this is true of movie fans too. You know, it's just yeah. like we have to do the Michael Myers. We have to explain why he's this Leatherface. We have to explain why Darth Vader. Everything is explanation, explanation. There's no mystery anymore. Nobody will accept mystery. And I love the fact that DC went out of its way to say, we are not going to give you the definitive origin. We're going to give you four origins. Pick the one you like or none of them. (laughs) I love that. That's almost them purposely sticking their finger in the eye of comic book fans. (laughs) And so the fact that this story posits that Christianity is the one true religion in the DC universe is kind of amazing, really. But then you think, well, but... The other three stories blow that out of the water, so it doesn't matter, right. you know. Um, so, so the fact that this is so tied heavily into you know the Christian, the, I, you know, I was about to say myth, sorry, but I mean the, you know the story of Christianity, the story of Jesus Christ, 
it's potentially blasphemous in a lot of ways that you're working this comic book character who's, you know, appeared with Superman into the life of Jesus Christ. But it because it's part of uh, three other stories, I think it, it makes it more palatable. So I like it quite a bit. And again, it's Jim Aparo drawing The Phantom Stranger. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I really dug this story until the end when essentially the words of God appear in the flames. And it wasn't that I disliked that for any kind of like secular or religious reasons. I felt like that moment kind of hijacked the story and took it away from what was going on. Because up to this point, the stranger had been walking as a form of punishment. And then instead of his eternal punishment, then he continues his journey as a form of personal penance. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure why he made that decision, but it also felt like... I don't know why that was supposed that moment was supposed to renew Father Knox's faith. Why it wasn't the story itself or Yeah, I, I can I, see that. I mean it it's a little bit of a, a cheat that the Phantom Stranger makes him forget mm-hmm. everything with the with the super whammy there that he puts on him. Because it's like what a life changing event that would be to literally hear the word of God. <laughs> you know, that would be a life altering event and it did feel a little bit of a cheat that the you know that it's just like oh never mind i you know whatever but yeah i get it i mean bringing in god at the end of your story is quite literally joey says machina i mean it's literally that so it does i can see what you're saying it does feel like a little bit of a cheat that that comes in and it's it's done so fast i mean the whole thing is one page Uh it's kind of amazing i mean i'm guess i guess we should be glad that he and i'm putting he in you know capitals he didn't literally appear because then he would be part of who's who at that point. I mean, he would literally be a DC character. <laughs> so, Thinking about Aparo's art, uh, going to page four, the panel where the stranger is essentially, or Isaac is cradling his, his dead wife, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. I saw that and I was like, hmm, I don't think anybody drew somebody cradling a dead body like Jim Aparo did. This was two years to the month before A Death in the Family, issue three. Mm. So. I just I can never say anything bad about the guy. I just love his work so much, and uh, I just remember being a kid, you know, being a kid, and like if if I opened a comic and he drew it, and I didn't know that he was drawing it, like it was a bonus. It just felt like such a wonderful thing. It was just like, oh, Jim Aparo was drawing this. I just yeah, it wasn't really until the end of his career where he was getting other people to ink him that I felt that the quality started to to decline a little. But he was a lot older, and you know, we all. You know, we all <laughs> we all have our moments, but uh, I, I just to me, it's like there is no 1970s artwork by Jim Aparo that I didn't like. Yeah. There just there just isn't. I can't think of a single comic I've seen him draw from the 70s into the 80s, and this is late 80s. This is 87. Mm-hmm. So to me, he still held on to it pretty pretty late. So yeah, I just I just love the heck out of it. And even though I mean I came into comics a decade later, but like my earliest DC comics were Batman and Detective books, and they were by Jim Aparo and Norm Brayfogle mm-hmm. like, while they were on the books. So his style did kind of define one of my favorite characters. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other notes on this story? Uh, I uh, I interviewed Mike W. Barr about this for, mm-hmm. for the Fan Stranger blog, and I asked him about it, and I said, like, you know, how did this come about? And he said, uh, right, you know, in terms of like, how do you ended up writing this story? And he said, writers often talk about their pet projects. A story I had mentioned more than once from the DC offices was the idea that Phantom Stranger was actually the wandering Jew. Either I pitched the story to editor Bob Greenberger or he, having heard me talk about the idea, asked me to write it. It's still one of my favorite 10 stories. And the last feature, Alan Moore's pointed story, bookends it nicely. 
Of course, everyone is on for that book. It's definitely a high watermark. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith. I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain. Made damn sure the pilot washed his hands and sealed his face. The next one is uh, And the Men Shall Call Him a Stranger by Paul Levitz and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Is that a thing? Are we supposed to say something after that? Yes, we are. And it's across all podcasts, Ryan. (laughs) If you mention him on Dead Bath and Spies, you still have to say it. Um, Anyway, in this story, uh, it says in this version, a city of man fell into the ways of evil wrapped in the sinful ways of the deceiver. And you see that with the opening splash page because there's people rioting, there's wars, there's people, there's uh, lots of people having sex. It's just like, it's just a crazy hedonistic thing. And they're in the middle of it as the Phantom Stranger. Uh, He says, only one man seems despondent over this turn of events and he prays for the town's forgiveness. That forgiveness doesn't come. And in fact, a series of disasters befall it. Lightning storms, great winds, finally a flood carrying everyone in the city to their deaths. The one good man survived and prays to God for the people of the town to be spared. He He offers his own life in return. His offer is rejected in person by an angel who says they have been sent to take this man away from this evil place. Quote, the city has been judged and must fall. The man refuses, threatening to kill himself. The angel warns him not to do this, but he doesn't listen and ends his life. But before this man's soul ascends, the angel says this man's work is just starting. He must return to his body to perform good in the world. We see the man set out on the journey, saving lives and souls. As long as there are the damned, so long, so shall you suffer to be prisoner of this fate. And it ends with him rescuing uh, a family from uh, some, some like, a, like an earthquake, or in terms of like a bunch of stone pillars fell on them. And they ask him, they, they ask him, how can we reward you? And he says, I, I, can do, I cannot take any rewards. I am simply a stranger. And he wanders off into the sunset, basically off to uh, do more good deeds in the world. And that is the end of this story. So a new reader coming into this issue finds the first story drawn by Jim Aparo. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that's, that's quite a high standard to set. And, okay, what's, what, what is your follow-up? What is the next story? Oh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be, praise his, be name. his name. 
All right. <laughs> this is an all-star book just on its own. Yeah, this is, I mean, you look at the lineup in this book, it's Garcia Lopez and Aparo and Ernie Colon and Joe Orlando. That is an all-star team. Uh, short of Justice League of America issue 200. I'm trying to think of another book where you had so many A-list artists working and not just doing like pinups or like one pages, mm-hmm. but right, right, actually right. contributing a story. Yeah, this is this is the uh, I I love Robert Greenberger for putting this together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did you think about this one? My only hesitation with this one is just that it follows directly after the apparel one, and it's thematically similar. Um, the other two are much more divergent, and I think maybe it might have worked a little better to intersperse them. Uh, you know what I mean? To not have the two overtly religious ones right up front, maybe put them in the first and third position as opposed to one and two. Um, but other than that, I mean, it, it you know, it, it takes its own path uh, in terms of working the Phantom Stranger into a religious text. I, I think this one's a little – it's got a little more gravitas. I'd say partly it's because it's just drawn by Jose who's just – yeah, just so – ridiculously good um and i i it requires less of sort of an emotional change you know like you mentioned in the, about the first story that he decides to you know basically instead of turning away from god turn towards god this you don't have that you know this is a little more of like he's condemned to wander and be a stranger and do good deeds which makes more sense in terms of how you reconcile the character later on because he's always been a force for good he's always going on about you know i cannot do lay a hand i cannot get involved which is nonsense because he gets involved all the time right uh whether it be hitting robots with lightning bolts or you know whatever he's always getting involved so i also think it's gutsy that in no other than the splash page at no point in the story does he actually appear like the phantom stranger i love that idea i like that he's he looks different through the eras that's a that's a really neat idea it's interesting. This one is a more overtly heroic and noble depiction of the Phantom Stranger. Um, right. And I think you, you kind of nail it with the word gravitas. And it's interesting because if we're looking at the, the Christian symbiology here and the, the biblical themes, this story is much more of an Old Testament, um, like sort of Hebrew Bible type of story in that – I mean the, the, the unnamed city here is, it could, is a stand-in for Sodom or Gomorrah. Sure. Everybody's just losing their mind, going crazy, doing horrible things, and the city needs to be punished for it. And he is standing up for his people. He is trying to defend them. He is offering himself as a sacrifice, and that's not what God wants. Right. And and he's almost punished for doing the right thing based on his moral standards, that he's showing more loyalty and more faith in the people than he is in God, and that's why he suffers. And that's that presents a, a depiction of a very crappy God. But again, <laughs> that, that that goes towards the Old Testament again. Who he he, he was angry. He was vengeful. Yeah. Yep. So it, it is in keeping. They, yeah, they are. They're two very. I, but my first note that I had was yeah, having these two stories back to back, they should have been separated. Um, just like you said, I think. This one almost gets lost in the middle when you read all four of them quickly together. Mm-hmm. But still a very good story. The art is beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I still – I am of the contention that uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise, praise be his be name, name, is the single greatest comic book artist to ever work in the medium. Uh, he's not the most influential. He's not the most innovative. He's not the whatever – You know, there's many other 
Jack Kirby, Will Eisner, you know, all these other people. But to me, in terms of the consistency, uh, the quality of his work over decades and what he brings to it, in fact, that he brings a sort of classically illustrated style. I mean, I think you could – this guy could have done stuff in the 1920s, you know, for like the Saturday Evening Post mm-hmm. or like, you know, whatever magazines. But he also manages to bring a comic book sort of kineticism to it. I, I just I, – uh, I really think he is the, the, the single greatest artist the comic book field has ever had. And he continues to to do to, to work, which is amazing. Well, if you look at – in terms of just the stock art that is used on oh, GIs yeah. and yeah. other publications, it all comes from this guy. Yep. I mean I've got a four-piece set of glasses of DC heroes. It's Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern. Yeah. I, think, I think the Green Lantern one is Neil Adams, but the other three are Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. Okay. And it's obvious. Yeah. Um, like right. I had – I had a T-shirt, and it's actually it's a shirt that you talked about on the Aquaman Shrine, but I got this, I don't know, like in 1990 or something at a Warner Brothers store. Um, but it was a T-shirt with five DC heroes on the front lined up and five on the back, and I'm 99% sure they were all Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his praise name. Be his it was Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Robin, and Batman on the front. And on the back, it was Aquaman, Green Arrow, Plastic Man, Hawkman, and Green Lantern. <laughs> cool. That's a cool shirt. <laughs> I have and, uh, to go look that, looked it up on my site. I don't remember that shirt. You, you, covered, really you, cool. you covered it like five years ago, I think, okay. if not more. <laughs> that sounds like a great shirt. Yeah, it is such a fun shirt. I wore it out. I wore it like every day for, to school for like two years. Um, and I, I remember like I used it actually as a barometer for the other boys that I would hang out with because there was a kid who was like, oh, yeah, I know all of those characters. Yeah, those are some of my favorites. And he pointed to Plastic Man and he said, that's Stretch Armstrong. Oh, and I was like, I'm not talking to you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and he pointed to – right? Yeah, he pointed to Green Arrow. He's like, that's Robin Hood. I was like, all right, I'm sorry. Oh, you my need, God. I was like, you need to go to the other side of the bus. <laughs> wow. Hey, secret admirers. It's Ryan here. Sorry to cut into the middle of this episode, but I need to address what Rob and I were just talking about. I am 100% certain that I have a t-shirt I just described. It had stock images of the heroes. They weren't really in action poses, although Flash was running toward the viewer, and Plastic Man was kind of squiggly. The rest, they kind of looked like they might have been taken from a style guide. And I'm positive, on one side of the shirt was Batman, Robin, The Flash, Wonder Woman, and Superman. On the other side was Aquaman, Green Arrow, Plastic Man, Hawkman, and Green Lantern. I am pretty sure that I saw the shirt posted on a blog a couple of years ago. I thought it was the Aquaman Shrine or Rob's JLA Satellite blog. I have searched those blogs and I can't find the shirt. I have searched Google, eBay, everywhere online I could think to look. I even had my lawyer submit a formal request to my mom to go through the old photo albums. She says she can't find any pictures of me wearing the shirt, which is probably another one of her venomous lies, because I had this thing for like two years. There is no evidence that I can find that this t-shirt ever existed, but I swear it did, and I loved it. If any of you listening to this podcast can find an image of the shirt, or if you remember seeing something like it, please write into the comments section of the Facebook or WordPress pages and let me know. This memory is haunting me, and I don't want it to drive me nuts. And more than that, I don't want Rob thinking my story about that shirt was all bullshit, because I'm pretty sure he does. Okay, back to the show. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it does say something that that stock art that this man created thirty years ago, mm-hmm. more more than thirty years ago, is still being used on products. That that says something about how timeless his work is. That it does not appear dated. Because think about, you know, when they put. And again, this is not a knock. No, please. And if you write angry emails, send it to secret admirers at whatever. <laughs> but like. You know, like when Jack Kirby's artwork is used on merchandise, it's purposely throwback merchandise. That's true. You know what I mean? It's it's meant to be like, oh, I have a the Hulk T-shirt from 1965 because it looks old. Again, not a knock, but it just it looks vintage the minute you see it. But Jose's stuff looks like it could have been drawn yesterday. It does not look to me like it was drawn in 1982. And you think about how many styles comic books have gone through since then, and yet that stuff is still used on merchandise. I I hope he gets money from it because he deserves to. <laughs> I mean, I I don't think anybody when they hired him thought we will still be using this stuff on notebooks in 2015. You know, mm-hmm. no one would think that. Yeah, and I think another another example of that is when you think about how many Batman fans there are who prefer the Dark Knight version, the the grim and gritty, ultra sort of extreme kind of Batman. They would still buy a T-shirt of Batman and Robin by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. His name. It's, yep. It, I, I think they would look at that, and that doesn't look like a campier, less what they would consider legitimate Batman. Right. That's still yeah. the Batman. It's the timelessness, the iconicness. But yeah, there's a reason why I picked a drawing by him to put on the foam certificate that I sent out to everybody because I'm like, I'll never have to change this. This will, <laughs> always, this will always look current. Okay. Any other thoughts on the story? No, I think I think we're good to go. Okay. We're going to take another break, but we'll be back with more Phantom Strangeness. Hey, Kids Comics! Hey, Michael! Yeah? We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one. Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved. We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do. We still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hey Kids Comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.libson.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers your name. When you're strange. When you're strange, when you're strange People are strange, when you're a stranger Faces look ugly, when you're alone Women seem wicked, when you're unwanted Streets are uneven, when you're down Revelations is written by Dan Mishkin with art by Ernie Colon and Pablo Marcus. Letters by Albert de Guzman and colors by Carl Gafford. As he did with the two previous origins, Robert Greenberger edited the story. Sometime in the future, when cars can fly and rats have robot legs because, you know, science fiction, Earth is no longer capable of sustaining life. 
While humanity has already staved off one obliteration once by preventing the sun from going nova, the new catastrophe looming on the horizon appears much worse. A group of scientists have developed a machine that allows them to peer back through time and witness the dawn of existence. Their intention is to siphon energy from the Big Bang to jumpstart whatever problems their universe faces today. The scientists witness the universe play out in reverse until all solar matter swirls and begins to form what looks like a massive stellar hand. And that's when the Phantom Stranger arrives and shuts off the monitor, prophesying doom and telling them the old some-things-man-was-not-meant-to-know thing. The lead scientist argues the point, insisting that their plan will save the universe. The Stranger says man can only save himself on an individual basis. Then, a scientist named Dr. Alt, who is obviously evil because he has a beard, incapacitates the stranger with a kind of shock blast attack. He binds the stranger to an elaborate chair thingy and mocks the enigmatic stranger. For Dr. Alt is, according to the Phantom Stranger, the avatar of anti-life. Alt is actually hoping for the experiment to end all of existence. That suits him just fine. This revelation is witnessed by the unnamed lead scientist, but his attempt to warn others about Dr. Alt fails, and he too is captured. While Dr. Alt goes to the monitor to end the world, the scientist laments that he did not heed the stranger's warning. The phantom stranger tells the man that he, the scientist, can still stop Dr. Alt, and then passes all of his ancient and mysterious power to the scientist. The process frees the scientist from captivity, but kills the stranger. In the lab, Dr. Alt prepares to destroy the universe. The scientist rushes in and dives through the monitor, traveling through time and space and emerging at the moment of the Big Bang. Alt activates the machine to siphon the energy, but the scientist is there to intercept the event. It floods into him, changing him, giving him infinite power and awareness. Dr. Alt's plan is foiled, the universe is saved, and the scientist is reborn as the Phantom Stranger. The same stranger that was, is, and always will be. So, very different take on the character, very different setting. Uh, What did you think of this one? This one, uh, I like it. It's my least favorite just because I feel like putting him in outer space, essentially, is a little... um, What's word? I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly, but it's like it it smacks a little of just trying to be as different as possible, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But it, you know, sometimes something doesn't work. Uh, shoot, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not explaining my point very well. It's kind of like every movie vampire, right? After Dracula mm-hmm. is whoever is playing Dracula is just making sure not to do Bela Lugosi. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it doesn't work because Lugosi really did it really perfectly, and so therefore, yes, you're doing you're you're you want to make sure you're not just copying Lugosi, but that's hard because Lugosi was maybe the best way to do it, kind of. You know what I mean? So it's like I, I think trying to set it in outer space or in the future is a nice thought experiment, but in the end, it doesn't know if it really works because it just seems it looks so weird to have somebody dressed like the Phantom Stranger walking around outer space settings you know <laughs> yeah. that's that said it's drawn by ernie cologne who just again another guy uh i think is underrated and i think he does a great job so he kind of sells it with his ability to especially the final scenes where you know the stranger is becoming basically like the star child from 2001 or whatever <laughs> so uh, it's it's really well drawn so it it, it, it works and it, i think it works in the context of being one of four if they had just done this as this was the origin of the phantom stranger i would have been like what you know like no way but the fact that it's one of four you just say okay this is a you know it's perfectly valid just as any of the other ones 
Yeah, and you you talked to Dan Mishkin about this story too, right? Mm-hmm. What was kind of his thoughts about this? Do you remember? He uh, let me. I'll, write, I'll read what he says. I asked him about like how he came up with the idea, and he said, "Well, I was determined to take an approach that no one would expect, one that would not fit any of the conceptions that were floating around at the time. And since those concepts tended toward a religious explanation for my character's existence, my contrarianism immediately pushed me towards science fiction." And I had another goal for the story, though I can't honestly remember if it was one I saw from the very beginning. I wanted to have the origin story follow the classical Phantom Stranger formula in which a person who was about to confront a momentous choice has the starkness of the choice, the huge divergence in the possible outcomes highlighted by this mysterious figure who comes out of nowhere. And I didn't even think about that until he had said it, but that's true. It is, in a weird way, the most classically Phantom Stranger-y story of the Mm -hmm, four. mm -hmm. The first time I read this issue, I kind of threw this story aside. I was like, okay, this, <laughs> this is the odd man out, clearly. Um, and it does, you're right, it does feel almost deliberately contrarian. It's like, so we're not all of the same piece, here's the outlier. But after I read the interview that you did with, uh, with Mishkin, and after I kind of heard his way of thinking, I re- other than the setting, I really liked his approach to the character. Yeah, me too. And I like that... The stranger is almost kind of passive. He's, he's very much a witness to this momentous event, but he's not the one who stops it directly, um, and that he also, at the end, dies but doesn't really die because in, in dying, he is reborn the same type of character. His consciousness is just resurrected. And it also, it kind of sets up that idea that this isn't really the origin of the Phantom Stranger the Phantom Stranger has no clear origin, or he might have existed in a thousand different people over the ages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so in, in one sense, all of these stories could be valid. All of the stories might be true um, right. if, you, if you don't take necessarily one or none of them. So after that, thinking, I, I don't like the setting, and I think Cologne's art, while great, is the weakest of the four – but I really like the story, and I really like Mishkin's approach to the character. And mm-hmm. I think this might be my favorite depiction of the Phantom Stranger maybe I've ever read. Um, now, I've, I haven't read his solo books. I've only read him in guest appearances. But I liked where Mishkin was coming from. Yeah, it's a shame that Mishkin did not get a chance to write the character, I think, ever again. Because, uh, yeah, I think he clearly I, – I, th- I agree with everything you just said. I think all that stuff makes sense. And I think the story works better having read Dan's thoughts on mm-hmm. it. So, yeah, it's, I think it would have been interesting to see Dan Mishkin write sort of classic, classic Phantom Stranger stories as opposed to this one. So it, might have been, it might have been a really interesting uh, viewpoint on the character. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on it? I, I like the idea that I, I said uh, – I, I did ask Dan about, were you given any indication what the other possible Stranger origins might be like? And he said, except for the sense that a religious explanation for its origin was where most current thinking was going, I had no idea what the others were up to. So – I love that idea that they were all sort of working in a vacuum from each other. And I really – just as I'm sort of talking out loud extemporaneously here, I think I'm maybe being a little harsher on the story than I mean to be because I really do like it. It's just it's just that first opening page where you see him in the future, just like, what? You know, like It just has that slight discordant feel to it. But then it does sink in. And when you, when you mention what you just said about that this story could possibly encapsulate any of the other ones – yeah, then I like it a lot more. Yeah. When you think about it from that point, you're like, well, I, this doesn't necessarily rule out any of the other ones, and that makes it even cooler. Yeah, yeah I, even though I dismissed it at first, the more I thought about it and after I read Dan's thoughts, I really, really liked it. It's not my favorite just because I think the art is the weakest and the setting is 
contrarian, but yeah, I think I think of all four, I like Dan's approach to the character, and I like where he was coming from. That's that's just kind of it. Take a little walk to the edge of town and go across the track where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as a ship and crack where secrets lie in the border fires and the humming wires yeah man you know you're never coming back across the square across the bridge across the mills past the stacks on a gathering storm comes a tall handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand story in Secret Origins number 10 is called Footsteps, because the title Paradise Lost would be too on the nose. It's written by Alan Moore, drawn and quartered, sorry, drawn and colored by Joe Orlando, lettered by Bob Lapham, and edited by Robert Greenberger, who is really whoring himself out on this issue. In New York City, the Phantom Stranger observes two members of a gang called the Subway Angels. One of the so-called angels, a man named Otis, is trying to convince his friend to quit the Subway Angels and their leader, a man named Josh. Instead, they could take up with people living in the underground tunnels. By Otis's way of thinking, things up on top are getting too crazy for Josh to handle, but smart guys like Otis and his friend could amass a lot of power by organizing the dregs in the tunnels. On the next page, the scene changes to the ethereal plains of heaven. The angel Etrigan... Yes, you heard that name right. Don't spoil it for the people around you if you know the reference. Etrigan visits another angel, who we understand to be the Phantom Stranger, and asks if he wants to join Satan's rebellion against God. Stranger Angel is kind of waffling. He's not committing to either side yet. Do you get what's happening in these two scenes yet? The stories are parallel. They're going to continue that way for the next couple pages. Back in the tunnels beneath New York, the undecided subway angel witnesses the lost dregs of New York, the vagrants and runaways. Otis tells him about his plan to rebel against Josh and says any subway angel that joins him will secure a powerful place in his new order down below. In heaven, Etrigan brings the stranger angel before the angel Satan to hear his pitch. Satan believes that God's plan to create humans and give them the earth is both an insult and a disaster waiting to happen. Satan has gathered his own army of angels ready to revolt against their creator. Back in New York, Otis's attempted coup has failed miserably. The subway angels beat the crap out of Otis, while Josh says the subway angels help people, and if that's not good enough, then Otis and any of his other friends can go rot in the deep, dark bowels of the city. For his part, the undecided subway angel doesn't help Josh or Otis. He just stands there watching and waiting. In heaven, Satan's rebellion is underway, but the stranger takes no part in the war of the angels. 
Naturally, God wins, and he casts Satan and Etrigan and all of the rebels down into the chaotic void, where once banished from the light of heaven, their once beautiful forms are corrupted and changed into hideous bestial bodies. In New York, the undecided angel searches the lower tunnels for Otis. He confesses that Josh kicked him out of the subway angels. After all, who would trust him? But when he finds Otis, his old buddy isn't any more welcoming. In fact, Otis is pretty pissed that his friend didn't back him up when he needed him. So Otis and the sewer people beat his noncommittal ass. Likewise, in the primordial muck that will become hell, the stranger angel reveals to the fallen that he, too, was cast out of heaven for being neutral. Satan and his horde are disinclined to welcome the stranger, as he didn't stand with them in the war, and he wasn't punished like them. He still appears beautiful and graceful, well, until they curb-stomp him and rip his wings off his back, telling him he shall never be allowed in heaven or hell, that he will walk in between for all eternity. The poor bastard in the tunnels regains consciousness and is greeted by the phantom stranger, who says he shares his pain, and he knows what this man is going through. Sometimes, he says, it helps to walk to forget your problems, and sometimes it helps to share your pain with like people. And thus ends the final installment of The Secret Origin of the Phantom Stranger. What did you think of this one? Oh, I think this is great. I mean, I, I love... I mean, Alan Moore is a huge fan of Joe Orlando. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, you know, I mean, he actually worked Joe Orlando into Watchmen, for Pete's <laughs> sakes. I mean, Joe Orlando was in the world of Watchmen. So I can almost see the delight that Alan Moore is getting from having his story drawn by Joe Orlando. I mean, you can almost just sort of feel it. Um, the ending is really very sweet, and Alan Moore is not always known for his sweet endings, but it has kind of a nice sentimental end to it. Um, I love that Etrigan is worked into it before. Yeah. You know, that's great yeah. because these these two are these characters have always been sort of tied at the hip. Basically, I think it was I think they've appeared together before Alan Moore, but Alan Moore really joined them together as sort of these you know guys are just always sort of around one another. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think it's I think it's it's a lot of fun. It feels. You know, nasty and meaner. It's certainly more violent than the other stories. I mean, the wings getting ripped off and stuff like that. Um, and while it does have another religious angle, I mean, you just can't help it. Uh, it. It comes at it from a different angle than the other two stories. So I think it's – and just on a sort of like symbolic level, I was really happy that the end of this book ends with the Phantom Stranger looking as how we know him to look. You know, because he really doesn't get to appear that much in this book as that. You know, I sort of like that. That's the book ends with him looking that way, like the the version that we know. So, yeah, I think it's great, and it's a it's. Uh, I think it's the perfect story to end end on. I think it's when you read it, you know, you're like, oh no, this is definitely the the, the how we should close out the book. I agree. I do not like the last panel on page nine when the the angel first sees the phantom stranger. There's a weirdness to that image. It doesn't have the same flavor that the rest of the work does. Um, I like the way Orlando draws the stranger throughout, but that one panel at the end, yeah, I, I don't know. That that feels like a rushed job. Mm. That whole panel, like I, I, I. I would interpret that as the guy who certainly has a concussion, if not more right. problems. Right. Um, but there's the position, the contortion, the waving of the, the cape. I don't like that. I don't like that image. But everything else about the art and the story I love. Um, this I, – I can't believe I would say this, but I like the art in this story more than the art by Aparo and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. name. Um, it's – it's different, I, and I think it's it's specific for this story because normally I wouldn't put 
Joe Orlando above those those guys. Now, Joe Orlando was a different type of artist, and he worked in a different, almost a different medium, certainly a different genre for a lot of his career. But I like the story. It's it's crowded with this parallel structure, this parallel story of the neutral angel falling, and that's obviously a concept that is mentioned in certainly in a lot of Renaissance literature and epic poetry by you know John Milton's Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno. It's interesting that this sets it up that it almost it almost feels to me like the stranger is the only neutral angel, like that he was the only one who didn't take a side in this war between Satan's rebels and God's like sort of loyal angels. Mm-hmm. And I like that concept too. I like that idea that He's the one person who's cast out and can't, doesn't have a home now. It, it feels loaded, and it's it's a it's a shame because it feels like today there is a backlash against Alan Moore because he seems like such a cranky old man with his head up his ass, like in the way he gives interviews and the way he talks to the few people that he does talk to. And it, I, I feel like there's a lot of kind of backlash against his work um certainly his more popular works but it's hard when you read the story not to see the brilliance uh, and how talented a writer he was because i think this probably is the best written of the stories yeah i mean as as more time passes between his most famous work and today uh yeah younger fans are gonna have a hard time understanding why is this guy so great he sounds like a maniac just yelling about this or that, and you know, because basically all, all you ever hear about with Alan Moore nowadays is when he's in a fight with somebody. <laughs> you don't hear about anything else. I mean, he's still working, but you don't hear about any of that stuff really for the for the most part. Um, so yeah, I, I, that uh, you know, I think that's I think that's like a, the Ralph Nader effect or something. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like Ralph to a, to a generation of people, Ralph Nader is famous for one thing. Yeah. And but Ralph Nader did a lot of really good stuff many decades ago, but nobody kind of remembers that now because it's like, oh yeah, he's that guy that you know spoiled the election, you know. And you're like, but he did a lot of really good stuff back, you know. So yeah, I think Alan Moore. It's for younger fans who haven't read Watchmen, haven't read Saga of the Swamp Thing, haven't read you know his one-off stories. Uh, you know, I know how much other people in the 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 podcasting family hate it, but the the whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, I love. You know, I mean. Well, especially right now, they're like the Killing Joke might be the most hated story in all yeah, comics the these days. That's, right, that's another and, great example. Yeah, and I love the idea—the last panel of him, a fam stranger, uh, and the, the the guy walking in this in New York City at night. I just love that image because it feels noct- nocturnal late at night, and I just I'm picturing the fam stranger and this guy like getting a, a food at a diner. <laughs> In the middle of the night, I just love that idea because you finish it or could do something like that. That panel, it, I love. Yeah, I, love. I, I just like that idea of like him getting this guy a fry, some fries and a burger at three in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, imagine that waitress. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, you know this this guy with a hat and a cape can't really see his face too well. And you know what? Uh, it's New York. I don't think she would right, even right, care. That, that's true, especially with the vagrant who's probably missing an eye. And, suffering from all sorts of internal he's like, hemorrhaging. He's like, I have no money to pay this bill, but I will grant you. you know, it's like he's just <laughs> mystical powers or something. Here, I'm going to use my magic to conjure a hot dog from Nathan's. 
Yeah, exactly. It's a sweet ending. I, it's mm-hmm. Alan Moore didn't, you know, Alan Moore is not as grim as some people actually think, never really think about him because his swamp thing is certainly very sweet in a lot of ways. But this ending is just, it's just a nice, it's, it's like a, it's just like a nice way to go out. Fan Stranger being nice to somebody and, and mm-hmm. treating him in a, in a, in a sort of, again, like, like a nice way. Mm-hmm. And that feels like we're seeing what was set up in the earlier stories. We're seeing an example of him meeting a person and making that person better or helping that person. And we right. had that we had that promised in the first two stories that this guy is going to wander and he's going to affect people's lives. Right. And that's what happens again. So And I love the colors. Yeah, again, mm-hmm. that last panel, all these reds, and it, it's just, uh, yeah, I think Joe Orlando did it. Uh, Joe Orlando pretty much was retired at this point, so I think he, he did stories because he kind of wanted to do them, and this must be something he really wanted to do. How long was he working in, like, horror comics? Do you know when he started? He worked in, he worked on EC Comics. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was 50, thinking. So, I mean, and then he kind of shifted into being an editor at DC in the 60s and 70s, so he continued to work in the comics, I think, into the... Into the 90s, but he was sort of, you know, at that point he was in his emeritus phase where it was like, you know, hey, we got Joe Orlando to do a cover, that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I mean, he was, he had pretty much, uh, yeah, stopped being any sort of an ongoing artist at this point. So, yeah, they, they, I, I guarantee Alan Moore asked for Joe Orlando. I don't know that for a fact, and that, but that'll come back into a story I can tell about this, this issue in, in a few moments if we want to get to it. Okay. Well, the the only other real questions I had was, um, do you have a preferred story, not one that you necessarily think is more legitimate than the others, but do you have a preference for which story you like the most? Um, I think I'm most nostalgic for the one by Barr and Aparo, just because it's 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 a paro. Um, I, I think in terms of like what if I wanted to pick an origin, I feel like the one by Levitz is probably like the most the one that makes the most sense in my head. I'm like, you know what? If there's a way the fan trader started, yeah, that's the one probably. But it's like a you know like a twenty seven, twenty three, twenty three, twenty three. You know what I mean? Like the percentages yeah. are very, very, very close together. Yeah. Gosh. They're they're all so good. I I think hmm. uh, I might like huh. I might like the Alan Moore story the most, but ah gosh, I don't know. I I feel you don't have to decide, Ryan. You I mean you can just be agnostic about it? No, no, that's wrong. I this is the twenty first century. You have oh, to take okay. a position. You have to decide. Okay, right, right, right. You have to Get take Rob a side on everything. And make a prequel about the Phantom Stranger. <laughs> uh, no, and I and I agree with you, everything you were saying about like the why there is no more mystery in in comics. I think that we're we're ruining great characters by over explaining them. Yeah, characters like Darth Vader and Boba Fett and Wolverine. I think the worst thing that happened to that character was creating an origin for him. Mm. So yeah, I don't know. I put you on the hook, but I don't. I don't know which my favorite story is. <laughs> That's all that I had for this particular story. Um, do you have any anecdotes about this particular comic, Rob? I do. Uh, this is not a story that I think puts me in the best light, but I feel compelled to tell it. If you want me to. Well, I know Shag wants you to tell the story, so you better. I, I have no. I do not care at all what he thinks. Uh, basically, when I was preparing to review this issue for the Phantom Changer blog, at that point I had already started doing interviews. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do an interview with all four writers? So I reached out to Mike W. Barr, and I reached out to Dan Mishkin. 
And then I thought, oh, my God, that means I have to try and reach out to Alan Moore, <laughs> which is a terrifying thought. But I had a friend who had interviewed Alan Moore for something and so knew and knew him. So uh, I decided, all right. So I reached out to this friend and this friend very graciously sent me Alan Moore's phone number. Wow. And, and, said, and now Alan Moore, of course, does an email uh, because he chooses to live in that world. So basically the way you get a hold of Alan Moore is you call him. Okay. And I was utterly terrified at <laughs> that idea of calling Alan Moore completely, you know, sight unseen and, you know. I'm thinking an interview with Alan Moore probably sounds a lot like, like Willard talking to Colonel Kurtz at the end of Apocalypse Now. Yeah, and so I w- and then I also thought, boy, you know, does he even want to talk about his DC work? Because I know that things had kind of gone bad. But I was like, well, I have to screw up the courage to call him. You know, I just do because, you know, so by that point, I had already secured interviews with Mike W. Barr and Dan Mishkin. And I was like, well, let me just do the third one, which is Paul Levitt's quote unquote. That'll be easy because I had interviewed Paul for the Aquaman Shrine. Mm-hmm. So I thought and it, that we had gotten along well enough. And so I thought, well, this let me before I have to screw up the courage to call Alan Moore, let me finish the Levitt's one. So I emailed Paul Levitt's and for whatever reason, Paul Levitt's basically turned me down. Hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. And so in that moment, I was like, well, now I don't have to call Alan Moore. <laughs> because I was like, well, I'm not going to have all four. So why risk, you know, having Alan Moore put his magical whammy on me or something? <laughs> so I ended up not calling Alan Moore. I didn't get Paul Levitt. So I ended up – the, the, the post just has interviews with Michigan and Bart, which are great. I don't mean to, like, belittle their input at all. But, it, like – in in some weird way, I was almost happy that Paul Evans turned me down because that way I didn't have to interview, try and call Alan Moore. I just would have been too terrified. So, so it wasn't cowardice that kept you from interviewing Alan. Well, Rose. I mean, it was, but it was sort of like, well, okay. The whole point was to get the whole. Right. The, the whole thing was to get all four. Right. Well, I'm not going to get all four no matter what I do. So why bother? So yeah. So you know. It was okay. I still, I think I am. I do regret myself. Regret it a little that I didn't try. Because who knows? You know, maybe Alan Moore would have been, you know, nice about it. But just the idea of calling somebody blind like that and calling England and just being like, "Hey, man, do you want to talk about the story you wrote twenty years ago for a publisher you now hate?" I just, you know, <laughs> I was just, I just didn't have enough guts to do it. Sure. No, I completely understand. I wouldn't either. Yeah. All right. Well, um, let's uh, for. The fans who have already bought in for the first hour of the show, let's tell them a little bit more about Phantom Stranger on you know the big sort of macro scale. Where did this character come from in terms of publication? What was his journey up to this point? Can you take us down that road? Can you do this walk of when he was published and where? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he first appeared in the 1950s in his own magazine, Phantom Stranger number one. Uh, which first appeared in 1952. It ran for six issues. He's the creation of John Broom and Carmen Infantino. And, you know, over on the Who's Who podcast, me and Shag give Carmen Infantino a lot of grief because, you know, I think that was kind of the tail end of Carmine's career. And sure, yeah. I don't think it's great work. The stuff he did in Phantom Stranger is awesome. It is amazing work. And this I, is – I completely believe that because – and I, I know that was like – and I'm finding that with the, the Secret Origins podcast that they're reaching back to a lot of veteran artists who were maybe nearing the end of their careers and it wasn't as great as their heyday. And certainly, yeah, Carmen Infantino, he was an artist in the 40s. He created Black Canary. And he was – so I, yeah, I, I really like his work and I can imagine his early Phantom Stranger stuff was great. 
Yeah, it, it's it, it it is beautiful. It is it's not very mysterious because it really was. It was almost like a um, not so much a mystery book, but kind of like a sci- not sci-fi. That's not the right term either. But just it it just wasn't meant to be mysterious necessarily. Uh, because I mean, this was the comics. You know, this is 1952. The comics code, or actually, this is pre-comics code. But I mean, you know, they were they were trying to be, you know, gentle. They really couldn't. It, it wasn't a horror book. It's a mystery book. But boy, it's just beautiful. It, I, this this stuff is it's colored wonderfully. The Phantom Stranger looks fairly similar to how he looks now, except he didn't have. He's wearing a trench coat and tie. He's not so much rocking the cape and the uh, 70s medallion thing. But um, the the stuff is really beautiful, and he's kind of. He's the he's the main protagonist in these stories, but he's almost kind of like a host in some ways. Um, and then he disappeared, like he basically never appeared again. And then I guess somebody in the uh, maybe it was Mike Frederick, I don't know who the, maybe the the editor, but somebody in the late sixties at DC must have said, you know what, we own this character, let's do something with him. And they brought him back in Showcase number eighty, mm-hmm. the cover by Neil Adams, and that issue reprints some of the Carmen Infantino stories. Um, as like and and the, the rest of the stories, he's like the it's like a wraparound thing where you know it's a couple new pages. So they were sort of gingerly tiptoeing the Phantom Stranger into bringing bringing into bringing him back. Obviously, it worked because he ended up getting his own series just a couple of years later. Um, but yeah, and then that that's the, the version of Chucky's number eighty is the one we're all familiar with, mm-hmm. where he's got he's you know got the 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 the, the, the look that we're all sort of familiar with now and. Uh, that really was the beginning of it. So, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, the Phantom Stranger was a, you know, this is sort of like a golden age slash silver age sort of dichotomy, you know, where it was like, hey, they were like, you know, we can bring back the Flash. We can bring back Green Lantern. We can bring back Hawkman and the Atom and Black Canary and do all these. We can do that with Phantom Stranger, too. So that's kind of how it worked out. I wonder if they learned their lesson from Plastic Man and Elongated Man. If Julius Schwartz had an idea for this type of Mysterioso character, and somebody said, "Wait, wait, wait, let's go into our back catalog," we yeah, might, wait, wait, we, we got might somebody. Have Hold on. somebody yeah. like this. Yeah. Why is this particular issue of Secret Origins considered a Legends tie-in? What was Phantom Stranger's connection to that series? He, yeah, it's pretty, pretty precarious, <laughs> I'd say, in terms of a tie-in. I mean, the Phantom Stranger is there lecturing Darkseid during all this. Stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's basically the tie-in. It, it is really not a tie-in. DC was just so desperate to slap that thing on things. They realized it helped sell. But it really has nothing to do with, with Legends other than, hey, you know, for those of you who don't know who the Phantom Stranger is and why this guy's standing around talking to Darkseid, here's his origins. So, Well, that works for me. Yeah, I mean, he, he is the only member of the Justice League who was considered a member of the Justice League without actually saying he wanted to be a member. <laughs> they offer him membership in Justice League number 103. He disappears before he can accept. But later on, they talk about, you know, he's mentioned as being a member. And at one point, they he he appears in, I think it's like number 145 or 146, and they ask him something. And he literally says, I am a member of the Justice League. Am I not? <laughs> so obviously he was a member uh, in, in sort of good standing, I guess. And then, then when, when the Detroit League came in, I guess Aquaman didn't even bother. <laughs> stranger, he's gonna he's gonna show up in at the at the at the warehouse to be a member again. Was he a fair weather Justice Leaguer? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he just showed up. his purposes. Yeah, basically, he made he made a couple of appearances. He appeared in number two hundred, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, he appears in the three part when a world dies screaming two ten through two twelve, which was an inventory story repurposed for the regular Justice League book. So he appears there, and he, you know he made a smattering of little things. I mean. In the um, limited collector's edition, number C46, which is the Justice League issue, there's a great two-page pinup 
of the JLA having a party at the satellite, and the Finner Stranger is there. <laughs> he's all by himself, but he's but he's there, so you know he would show up with beer and uh, whatever wherever you needed him to show up with. <laughs> nice. Do you have a particular favorite Phantom Stranger appearance? Like, n- not necessarily like the one definitive issue, but between his solo books or his guest appearances, is there a run or a storyline that you particularly like? Well, as I said, I love the Aparoween stories. They are just so much fun. The covers are either by Apera or by Neil Adams, and it's they're just they're just fantastic. Phantom Stranger gets a girlfriend, hmm. which is awesome. I just love that idea that he's like, you know... Uh, and they gave him some villains. I mentioned Tenerak and Talia, and so I really love that stuff. But Alan Moore's stuff in Sega the Swamp Thing is tremendous. I mean, he really he really dug in deep and used those uh, mystical characters, the Demon and Phantom Stranger and all the magic characters. So I loved his appearances in in, um, in Phantom Stranger. So the stuff. I mean, I'm sorry, in Sega the Swamp Thing, mm-hmm. that stuff is really good too. So yeah, and and even his most recent book. I mean, he was given a new book in the New Fifty Two, which is surprising, and it was taken over by the the first couple issues are by Dan Didio, and I'm kind of eh on those. And then J.M. Demetrius took over, and I, I liked what J.M. did, but that book didn't last. Ended up getting canceled. So um, yeah, there's always been versions. I'm like, oh, and the, I, I should mention the the, the mini in 1987 by Paul Kupperberg and Mike Mignola yeah. is really is really good. I really like that too. So yeah, I mean, he's you know he's had a lot of good. For for a character that sort of works better as a side guy, his main when the stories where he's the main character have also been, you know, pretty darn good. So yeah, he's 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 a very malleable character, and he's he's like a you know like a a, a perfect pitch hit guy, you know, somebody that as a writer in a in a DC universe, like oh man, I can work this guy in. He's great. I can do so much with him. So it's just it's kind of a cool. You know, it's like one of the great things about working in a big combo company with lots of characters, you know, Um, and he's this guy you can just pull out and and use. And, you know, he does make an appearance uh, in um, the Kingdom Come audiobook. So you get to hear him there. You get to somebody (laughs) doing he was voiced by Denny Uh, O'Neill. Yeah, he only has one line, but but there he is. So, you know, uh, and he appeared in um, the Justice League Unlimited. So, I mean, you know, he's 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 always going to be around. There's there's never any reason to, like, reboot him necessarily because you can just sort of do what you want with him. There's that classic episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold. Oh, right. right. I forgot to say he was in that one, too. Yeah. Phantom Stranger and the Spectre, I think, are basically fighting yep. for Batman's soul. Rob, any final thoughts on the Phantom Stranger? Uh, just he still remains one of my favorites. I love seeing him pop up here and there, and I just love this issue of Secret Origins because it's doing the exact opposite of what the book was supposed to do, <laughs> uh, which I think is a, a just a fun change up. You know, I mean, and one of the few characters that you could do this with successfully. You know, so uh, I I just think it's a winner over. I mean, I love the Secret Origins book. I think the, doing a podcast devoted to this book is a, a great idea. Um, and so while I loved the idea of getting definitive origins, the fact that they were able to change it up for one, for a character that it was appropriate for, was just a great idea overall. I agree. It is, it is an appropriate deviation for this character. It is mysterious and it is frustrating. But this, this issue I know is a favorite of many of my listeners. Many fans um, point to this issue as one of the better stories in the series, which means it's going to be a hard road going from here. <laughs> I got 44 more books and they're probably going to suck. So. Oh, I don't think, hey, you know, I will say this about the Secret Origins. At later on, 
Secret Origins was the only comic book in my lifetime of buying comics that I used to buy just for the letter columns. <laughs> but we can get to that later on as as the series progresses. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much, Rob. Where can people find you if they need to learn more about you and your your comic book fandom? <laughs> uh, just go to AquamanShrine.net or, more importantly, actually the podcast, Fire and Water Podcast, which you can find on iTunes and Stitcher and uh, various other places. So uh, just type in Fire and Water Podcast on iTunes and, and you'll find us and there's tons of stuff to listen to. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for being part of this show. Um, always great to hear from you. Always great to talk to you. And I look forward to having you back in the future. Last episode, Gregor Rougeau and I talked about Hal Sherman, the artist on the Golden Age Star-Spangled Kid Adventures. Greg mentioned how the artist just sort of stopped working in comics around 1944, and we didn't know what happened to him, if he served in World War II or what. Well, both Siskoid and Van Zee linked Sherman's biography in the Lambia Comiclopedia. It says, After World War II, circa 1946, he assisted Bernard Bailey on backgrounds of The Spectre. Later, he returned to gag cartooning. He also did work on the Harvey character, Spooky. Working in non-comics cartooning sounds reasonable, but I'm not sure about working on The Spectre. As the encyclopedia entry is written, he started assisting Bernard Bailey on the Spectre after World War II. The thing is, the Spectre's last Golden Age appearance was in 1944. His stories in more fun comics might have been reprinted after that, I'm not sure, but I can't imagine Hal Sherman would have redrawn the backgrounds for reprint stories, would he? Maybe, but this inconsistency makes me question the validity of the Lambic entry. And honestly my own existence. Okay, moving on. Episode 9 received Twitter favorites, retweets, and comments from Ange, David Fiore, Firestorm Fan, Greg Arujo, Kyle Benning, Mark Sweeney, Siskoid, and Too Dangerous. Anthony Durso said, getting caught up with Secret Origins podcast starting with episode 4. Boy, that Firestorm Fan guy didn't let Ryan Daly get a word in edgewise. Yeah, that's just kind of what Shag does, whereas this episode I wanted Rob Kelly to do all the talking because I had a sore throat and couldn't bring my A-game. The Secret Origins Facebook page received likes and shares from Aaron Moss, Alan Middleton, Arthur Canning, Chris Meeman, Firestorm Fan, Gottman Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Gregor Rougeau, Keith G. Baker, Kevin Thomas King, Cord Industries, Kyle Benning, Mythmaking, etc., Roland Dupree, Shag Matthews, Sean Merrick, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Terry Wood, and Van Z. Gord Tolton commented on the Facebook page, considering that Crimson Avenger, Star Spangled Kid, and The Shining Knight, and even Green Arrow, though it was the new Earth, Ali, were covered, I am disappointed that we never got an origin for the Vigilante, and could not imagine any other artist than the then-still-living Grey Morrow. That would have been amazing. It would have. That would have been awesome. Uh, it is strange that Vigilante didn't get a Secret Origins treatment while lesser-known Western heroes did. On the other hand, he's not the only member of the Seven Soldiers of Victory to miss out on Secret Origins. Shining Knight did not get an origin in this series. The Silent Knight did. On to the WordPress page, and as always, I am not repeating every word of every comment. These are just sort of the highlights. 
I do, as always, encourage my readers to go and check out the discussion. They're a lot of fun. People come up with a lot of really insightful comments that I choose not always to read and report on the show because of time or other factors. Anyway, Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl commented back on episode 4. There must have been a lot of lag getting the episode across the ocean, I suppose. Uh, Martin said... I was with Firestorm from the start and appreciated a different take on the origin. Knowing by then that Martin was basically a good guy, I was okay seeing him so flawed at an earlier stage in his life. But that retcon about guilt making him forget is just bollocks. The original, consistent explanation that Ronnie was in control because Martin was unconscious at the time of the explosion and Ronnie was awake works just fine. Thanks for that comment, Martin. I'm sorry it necessitated you listening to Shag. Diablo Frank from the Marvel Superheroes podcast and many, many others, he commented on episode 8. He talked about his reading history with the Legion of Superheroes, and then he said, I think Shadowlass is a cute blue chick who romanced Mon-El, but was otherwise, in my reading, a peripheral character. She'd turn up again and again as part of pre- and reboot teams because she had a fan following that I was never given any serious motivation to join, simply because she was just there and had darkness powers, like a bunch of other characters who were better developed, and I'm even talking about Nightshade here. The Sword and Space Sandals fantasy of her origin may have been novel in the late Silver Age, but in the 80s, it played as late to the party with an open bag of stale, off-brand chips. There was such a glut of this type of material for 15 years prior to the Secret Origins issue, and having done my obligatory adolescent tour through Samaria, this yarn was especially bloodless. Dude overthrows a technologically advanced alien regime by climbing a tower and stabbing an orb thing with a sword? Then he inexplicably gains shadow powers, which he conveniently explicates upon post-mortem generations later to a pair of descendants who happened upon one another in the midst of a desert wasteland? And Shadowlass's actual core origin is that she inherited some superpowers that she developed over an undefined period of time, which she employed to handily defeat new oppressors in a panel or so? You boys need to pass me whatever yummy brownies full of happy herbs you ingested before this podcast, because this story sucks from its hoary purple prose scroll chapter openings to its understandable but still undesirable choice of artist. Even the lettering was amateurish, and it was by John Workman. I'm two weeks late replying to an episode where I was intimately familiar with half the contents because it took me that long to force myself to finish reading the one lousy story. So if I read that correctly, Frank loved the Shadow Last story. Well, what did he have to say about the Dowman story? He said... I wish your co-host had spent a fraction of the time researching that long quality comics tangent to look into the dictionary definition of the prefix co. Way to suck all of the air out of the room, dude. It was like he thought the internet was going to run out of bandwidth tomorrow, and he was racing to get the last ever podcast out. In defense of Frank's loquaciousness, he frequently interrupted his own quality comics monologue to ask if I had anything to contribute. I did not. So I edited those breaks out of the final episode, and it sounds like he just spoke nonstop for ten minutes. Uh, and then Frank asked if we can force a ban through listener referendum. Sure, we can ban future guests as long as I have no further use for them. And unfortunately, I still have a few more origin stories with Frank's name on them. Moving to last episode... 
Gregorujo said, When I was much younger, my father bought me a copy of The Great Comic Book Heroes, which I proceeded to read over and over. The Golden Age Flash Origin was probably my favorite story in the collection. So when I read this issue of Secret Origins, I was shocked how close the Flash Origins followed the original story. It might have been the first time I felt truly disappointed in a comic. Sure, I had read bad comics, but I was really bothered by the lack of effort in telling a new story. Definitely the comic version of copying someone else's work. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast and this episode of Secret Origins said, I've always had a soft spot for the Jay Garrick Flash, ever since my mom bought me the famous first edition, Flash Comics number 1 Treasury Edition, off the newsstand so many decades ago. Who was this guy who had a name I recognized but looked so different? Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast asked, Is it okay to admit that Tom Grinberg's art always reminded me of a sloppy Neil Adams riff? He was clearly trying to evoke Adams, but never quite got a handle on it. And then Greg explained that Grinberg worked for Neil Adams' Continuity Comics and probably picked up a lot of those styles and habits, though clearly not well enough by the time he worked on this issue. Chris continued, pointing out the montage page of The Seven Soldiers of Victory. Clearly, DC hadn't decided the Golden Age Green Arrow and Speedy were verboten at this point. How could they not realize another Ollie Queen and Roy Harper caused all sorts of continuity headaches post-crisis? Maybe Roy realized and was just keeping it quiet, holding on for dear life. They even made it out of their last real issue of All-Star Squadron, unretconned. For a while. Jeff Nettleton wrote, I always like Sylvester. DC seemed to struggle with a role for him, but he was always an interesting guy in a group. Roy got a little mileage out of him in Infinity Incorporated, though he was kind of pushed to the background. I always felt he could have been a stronger figure in that book, though he had moments. And then Siskoid concurred. Tell it, Jeff. Though the podcast suggests no one is a fan of Star Spangled Kid, I too like him quite a bit. In All-Star Squadron, certainly, but his Golden Age stories had a sense of cartoony fun. Of course, I have no interest in Infinity Incorporated. Newsstands didn't carry the book, so by the time I had access to a comic book store, it was after Crisis, and they were already the teen-siders. I think, maybe, and I won't speak for Greg, but I think Star Spangled Kid probably had good potential and good moments, but was frequently eclipsed by his teammates and shoved into the background. And remember, this is coming from a Black Canary fan. Jeff continued, Based on my naval engineering classes, the boiler thing was feasible, but a gauge broken off wouldn't be likely to vent enough steam to keep the boiler from blowing. Also, ducking an escaping blast of steam is a pretty neat trick. One of the ships in my squadron had a sailor who wasn't so lucky when a steam pipe burst. But that's why they are superheroes. That's very cool. I hope the guy survived, but very cool. Then Jeff and Mark Sweeney talked about the nature of legacy in the DC Universe, and if the sense of legacy was stronger between Earth-1 and Earth-2 before the crisis, or if the shared timeline created a stronger legacy with sidekicks and inheritors of the superpowers. It's a good debate. Michael Bradley from the Superman and Batman podcast, hashtag SuperBatPodcast, said... The original Star-Spangled Kid and Stripesy stories often are silly, and not always in a good way. Siegel was stretched very thin at that point, writing this strip, three stories per month, Superman, one monthly in Action Comics, three bi-monthly in Superman, one quarterly in World's Finest Comics, plus the daily and Sunday newspaper strip. The Spectre, one monthly, and Red, White, and Blue, quarterly in World's Finest Comics. 
I also believe his frustration with mandates from editorial, particularly in regards to Superman, was growing at this point, and combined with the workload had an effect on the quality of his work. DC apparently had a lot of faith in the strip at the outset, however. The characters, and he's talking about Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy here, got a monthly book all to themselves. It was a distinction that, at the time, was held only by Superman, Batman, and Flash, none of which were monthly, and the latter of which was quarterly and launched only two months before. In fact, I guess that would make Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy the first from DC to launch with a book all to themselves without previously having been in a recurring feature in another book. That's pretty interesting, Michael. I like that. And finally, Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, The Skyman story was something of a fail for me, mostly because Roy Thomas neglects the latter half of Sylvester's life. As a result, this issue reads more like it has two Golden Age characters rather than one Golden and one Modern. It was a fun story to read how Sylvester and Pat broke up the Nazi spy ring, but the truth is we have read many similar origin stories for characters in the 40s. I don't know if I needed a blow-by-blow of each nuance of that adventure. Instead, I was hoping to read more about his time with the Seven Soldiers, his time fighting the Nebula Man, how he dealt with life in the 80s after being a kid in the 30s. I especially was hoping for some talk about his time in the JSA as a member of the Super Squad with Power Girl. All that stuff is just blown by, and for me, that would have been the most interesting part of his tale. That would be like the second part of his origin, his modern origins. Yes, it is important to hear why he put on the costume, but there is way more to his backstory that could be part of his origins, leading him to being Skyman in Infinity Incorporated. Well, Anch, I completely agree with you, but you're missing the point of Secret Origins, brother. Roy Thomas was copying the Golden Age stories. Don't get me wrong, I would love to read about Sylvester being a time-tossed character and him coming to grips with life in the 80s and reflecting on his time with the Seven Soldiers. All that stuff would have been great. And Roy Thomas could have written that story in All-Star Squadron or Infinity Incorporated. But that would have required more work, and that's not what Roy Thomas wanted this series to be. Ange went on to say, I am a big Jay Garrick fan and was completely looking forward to this part of the issue when it came out. But, like many preceding it, it is a virtual retelling of the original story. You have talked here about the thought of just reprinting the original stories versus retelling with modern art sensibilities. But take a look at that Tusca art here. Is there modern sensibility in this retelling? Some panels look like coloring book pages, they are so devoid of detail. Still, you guys made this sow's ear into something of a silk purse. Thanks to Siskoid for pointing out all of the speedster names. I caught Johnny Quick, but that was it. And Greg, you aren't the only novice to be part of this podcast. You'll hear my nervous ramblings in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Next episode, buddy. Start the countdown. Episode 11 is going to suck, and it's all Ange's fault. <laughs> well, I probably shouldn't have said that until after we recorded the Dead Legionnaire episode. Oh, well. That is all for this episode. Once again, I want to thank all of my listeners and everyone who promoted the show on social media. I especially want to thank Rob Kelly for appearing on this show and, honestly, for doing all of the heavy lifting. I was not feeling well when Rob and I recorded. I think I should have the co-host credit for this episode. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or at BlackCanaryFan, or the username CountDruncula. Also, if you want to send private feedback for the show that you don't want to post on Facebook or WordPress, you can send me an email at BlackCanaryFan at gmail.com. 
The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Stream.